equipment was on probably, I think, McLean Trucking Lines is the official carrier for the major leagues or something like that. And so, WPTF probably knows that but when Tony Rigsby packs his vehicle and heads off to spring training. Uh, well, he, he he has or will be heading off yeah. to, to Arizona, you know, pretty soon. Yeah, he, yeah. He helps work with uh, spring training and a couple of teams in the Cactus League. But, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I, I, the only reason that I don't want him to do that is that one of these days he's going out there and he's not coming back. <laughs> yeah, oh, he's got, yeah, I I think Tony could easily go to the next the next level. Yeah, yeah he's he's ready he's ready to go to the next level. But we'll, we'll try to keep up with this, and uh, we will hope that the, the Reds and the Pirates uh, do better this year and that uh, they have good managers and can teach the young players what they need to know. I will say to our audience that I didn't give Dr. Walden's pedigree. He is from Cincinnati, and so you can believe he'd be a Reds fan. He's actually a graduate of the university. He's a Bearcat. And then uh, after he, he did that, he went to uh, uh, far above Cayuga's waters to Ithaca, New York, to get a Ph.D. at Cornell, and then came to NC State, I believe, in 1977 or 78. 78. Mm-hmm. 78. And he's been uh, professor of economics since then, and, and uh, fulfilling the full role of a, a land-grant school uh, professor. He has been on the radio with us to spread the word since 1989, I think, if I remember correctly. Because you were one of the first guests. And, you know, Dr. Walden, many listeners will not know what I'm talking about, but just a little over a year ago, I broke my leg and I was out of action and not, not on the radio for about three months. But the first person I called when I got back to where my computer was was yourself. Well, I was honored. I was honored that you did. Uh, well, we had, to, we had to get the information out. So let's talk about an overview of the economy. Yes. Um, the numbers recently have not been too good. Uh, people who keep up with this may have uh, may have heard we had a uh, jobs report last Friday at the, at the national level. We don't have North Carolina numbers yet for January. And uh, 49,000 net new jobs are created. Now, to put that in perspective, we, we right now have about 142 million jobs in the country with a little fair change there. So 49,000 on a base of 142 million is not much. And in fact, in December at the national level, uh, we lost jobs. So there's been a slowdown in the improvement of the economy. And I think this is all directly tied to the resurgence in, in the virus. Now, recent numbers show that maybe we're making some headway there. But uh, we're going to have to, number one, keep, keep get the virus under control, get those caseloads, get those hospitalizations, get those deaths going in the right direction, which is down. And then hand in glove with that, we will we need to get the vaccines uh, increasingly put in people's arms and, um, and and hurry that along. And I know everyone is talking about that, the new administration, uh, doctors, et cetera, and we, we're we're seeing some. I think North Carolina was lagging at the beginning of the vaccination period, but now we've really come come up. Uh, we've had some big venues like the PNC Center here, uh, Crown Center, I think, in Fayetteville. Uh, I think uh, I think Mr. Tepper, the owner of the Carolina Panthers, has offered up maybe uh, the stadium in Charlotte. So a lot of these big venues are are offering um, shots. Uh, I've already. Fortunately, given my age, uh, 70, I've got my, my two, and I can tell people that both Mrs. Walden and I uh, have had no problems, uh, no problems whatsoever, um, no reactions of any kind. So we were happy to have, happy to get that those shots, and hopefully, 
face shield, but we're still going to we're still going to obey the rules about masking and distance, etc. But uh, first step, hopefully, for for getting uh, past this virus. So anyway, I think once we get the vaccinations rolling, and once we get those uh, those numbers, those key numbers, deaths. Uh, cases and the hospitalizations going down, which they have been, I think, for most most cases have been trending downward. Then I think the economy will 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 pick up steam, and so I'm actually looking for a fairly good year economically in terms of uh, recovery of jobs, recovery of um, of economic activity. Dr. Mike Walden, up with an overview of the economy on uh, Tom Kearney Show here on WPTF, where our time has moved to nine fifteen. We're going to take a break right here, and when we come back, the topic is going to be one that has been bandied about, and I think the Biden, Biden administration has exampled some interest in increasing the minimum wage, and we'll hear Dr. Walden's uh, view on that, the question of increasing the minimum wage right after this. Dr. Mike Walden, Professor of Economics at NC State University, is our guest tonight. And as we promote on the other side of the break, he's going to talk about the minimum wage now. Yes, Tom. Uh, as we uh, do uh, several times in a decade, maybe, there is now a debate brewing about raising the minimum wage. Uh, there's been a proposal advanced uh, by the Biden administration as well by some in Congress to take the minimum wage, which is now seven twenty-five an hour, uh, gradually over time, not, not in one fell swoop, up to $15 an hour. So there's certainly a compelling, uh, uh, compelling reason to do that if you uh, think about the fact that minimum wage has not been increased since 2009. You might say, well, gosh, how can people get by on 7.25 an hour if uh, prices have gone up, obviously, over the last uh, what, 12 years? Um, we, of course, we, the country, first instituted, you're the historian, Tom, but it was in the 1930s uh, that a minimum wage was instituted. And I think the rationale there, again, is I think as, as, uh, as pertinent as it was then, that, that um, societies need to have some floor under which people um, will not, not, not get paid so that they can have some assurance of having some level of, uh, of a standard of living. So all those reasons, I think, point to increasing the minimum wage. The issue, and this has been an issue that has again been part of the debate for 80 years, is how will employers respond to that? Uh, will re- employers uh, say, all right, I'm going to have to pay my workers more, I'm just going to pass it along at higher prices, or will they say, huh, um, I, I'm, I just can't afford paying people a higher minimum wage, so I'm going to look for other ways around it maybe bringing in more technology, machinery, maybe actually hiring people who have more skills so they can, they're can they actually uh, worthy, if you will, in some sense of that higher minimum wage. So as you might expect, there have been uh, probably, there's probably been no other economic issue or economic question uh, that's, that's had more research done on, at least in this country, than the minimum wage. I have, I have a couple books in my office all based on looking at studies of the minimum wage. And there's an economist named David Newmark, who probably is the leading person on looking at impacts of minimum wage. In fact, he just published a, a paper that uh, updated uh, the studies that have been done in the last, say, five or six years uh, since his last book was, was written. And Tom, his conclusion is that the majority of people who work at a minimum wage, if a higher minimum wage is passed, uh, at, least, at least in the initial time period, uh, they will stay employed, 
and they will uh, reap the benefits of getting getting higher pay. However, um, again, Newmark, this is summarizing uh, hundreds of, of studies. Newmark's also found that a significant number of minimum wage workers will, again, maybe not immediately, but within a short period of time, lose their job as businesses decide they, they can accomplish what they want to do in terms of their production, maybe, again, using uh, more complex, more uh, people with higher skills or bringing in machinery and technology, et cetera. Congressional Budget Office, which is a nonpartisan arm of, of the Congress, issued a report a few months ago that indicated that somewhere between a million and four million minimum wage people could lose their jobs as a result of that. So I think that that's really the debate, and I think that's going to be the continuing debate that we've had. Now, there are some alternatives. And I'll mention one. There's an economist named Edmund Phelps uh, who uh, has written on a lot of economic issues, including labor issues. And for all of his sterling work, he has won a Nobel Prize in economics. Uh, so he's, he's someone that, that people like me pay a lot of attention to because that's, that's the highest uh, award or recognition you can get, I think, pretty, pretty much in any field. And he argues that uh, one way of sort of satisfying both sides, that is making sure that minimum wage workers are paid more, but on the other hand, making sure they keep their jobs, is to have the public sector step, step in and subsidize uh, low-wage workers in terms of, so for example, if you say uh, someone's earning seven fifty uh, uh, an hour, we want them to earn $15 an hour, Instead of forcing the company to pay that 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 roughly double that that additional seven fifty an hour, uh, the government would, federal government would primarily. And his notion is that that way you you accomplish this without hurting businesses, without hurting employment, yet recognize that people uh, need a certain level of income in order to to get by. We have a we have a form of that with something called the Earned Income Tax Credit. Uh, which which pays workers, first of all, it pays workers back all of their income taxes they paid if their wages are low relative to the size of their family. And then if they if they use up all that, they actually pay them additional money over and above what they've already paid in taxes. So that's another method. So, But we're going to hear more about this debate. It looks like in the current negotiations in the Congress about a COVID relief measure, initially the uh, minimum wage was going to be part of that. It looks like... There may be some backing off of that. This is almost a day-to-day -day thing that's in flux. But clearly this is going to be an issue that will be occupying the Congress as well as observers for, for several months. Dr. Mike Walden talking about uh, the potential for raising the minimum wage in the United States and the possibilities along that line. One of the reasons we like to have Dr. Walden on this program is you can go out and find your average economist uh, just about anywhere around a campus or, or government or somewhere, but we can't find economists, uh, and uh, this sounds like I'm make, making light, but I'm not really making light, I, but who uh, focus on the local scene. And one of the things that North Carolina has always been yearning for is some, some port, some way out to the sea. It was one thing that limited the economic development of what they call the old North State in the beginning. And Dr. Waldron tells me that here is a, potential for developing in some way more the port at Wilmington, particularly in a way that would serve farmers. Did it do all right on that, Dr. Walden? You did, you did perfectly. Well, apparently this is a done deal, Tom, and, and I think this is big news, 
not only for farmers in eastern North Carolina, but indeed for all of uh, all of the economy in eastern North Carolina, which of course is much more heavily agricultural based than say here in the, in the Triangle. Um, the uh, Port of, Nor- of Wilmington announced recently that they were going to dramatically expand their ability to hold farm produce uh, before it gets put on, on, on con- in containers and ships and, and, and shipped out of port to, to destinations. I think, I think the number I've read is it's, they're going to double their capacity to do that. And, and why that's important is, say, for, take, take for example, soybeans. Um, the way the process works, as I understand it, is uh, farmer ships their soybeans, in this case to Wilmington, they don't necessarily immediately get put on a ship. They get stored in elevators, grain elevators, and then, and then later they get shipped. And so the capacity of the elevators is very important in determining how many soybeans can be shipped out. And so if you increase that capacity, uh, that's going to mean more opportunities for North Carolina farmers to, in this case, sell their soybeans overseas. And where this is all uh, initially uh, coming from, Tom, is a few years ago, the Panama Canal, which had not been widened, I think, since its initial building in the early 20th century. Uh, there was, uh, I think it might have taken over a decade, I might stand to be correct on it, but there was a major widening of the Panama Canal that now uh, accommodates the, the large cargo ships that we now see on the high seas. Uh, that didn't exist when the Panama Canal was initially built. And what that has done is it allows more uh, shipping to foreign markets from the East Coast of the United States. Obviously, you, you could have had a, a big cargo ship come into a port on the eastern United States and then sail all the way down and go around, uh, the, uh, go around South America or go the other direction across the Atlantic and, and around uh, Africa. But now they can just go down and, and zip through the Panama Canal and off they go to, to Asia. So that's where this has, has come from, and this has been enormously beneficial already to the Port of Charleston. Uh, also, it's in some sense, uh, I think, to Norfolk, and I believe at one point um, uh, the, the Port of uh, New York, New Jersey, uh, one of the uh, major um, bridges there was actually raised, uh, uh, made higher, to accommodate these large cargo ships that uh, that couldn't have gotten through because the bridge was too low. This just shows you how important this is. So this is going to be, I think, a big deal for eastern North Carolina because soybeans is, is a major crop in eastern North Carolina, and uh, whether it can be uh, uh, whether whether we have implications maybe for other farm produce, uh, we will have to see. And again, uh, I do want to emphasize that when we think of farming in North Carolina, we think not just of what the farmers do, but we think of the processing of that of those products. We think of the distribution of those products, the, the sale of those products to to, um, ult- to to ultimate buyers. And when you take all of that activity and wrap them in the one number, uh, agri- what I like to call agriculture and agribusiness, in order to emphasize it's not just the farmers, but it's all the other operations that revolve around the farm farming. That's a $90 billion a year business in North Carolina. So it's very, very important as a percent of the economy. It's, it's much, it's very, very high in eastern North Carolina. So that's all, all a, a way of saying that this is, this is very, very big news to, to farmers in North Carolina, the fact that the Port of Wilming is going to expand their capacity. Well, it's encouraging to hear that, and uh, we're going to pause with Dr. Walden now and to check the news, and then when we come back, we'll talk some more about the economy. 
Yes, Kentucky, Boone County, Kentucky is the Greater Cincinnati Airport. Yeah. But it did get to fly with the baseball. I mean, the baseball stadium. Oh yeah, yeah. You, you, and you have was, a lot of flight paths to go right over the downtown area. Yeah. <laughs> and I, and I was going to say uh, when you asked me what my favorite movie was, I've been reminded of that much lately because about two weeks ago I got to do a program that is very meaningful to me because it was the 60th anniversary of the. The time in in my home county when the two when the B fifty two disintegrated and dropped two atomic bombs. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, it just makes me sometimes feel lucky to be here. But anyway, we need to get back. And okay. I think the the uh, the question that I couldn't read my handwriting was what had to do with with COVID relief. And, yeah. And uh, so we'll go back to that now and talk economic. There's so many fun things. You'll have to come one night when you've got a couple of hours, and we'll just wander all about everywhere. You don't find the economy fun? I'm teasing. I'm teasing. <laughs> uh, yeah, the COVID relief bill. Well, um, again, this is a major topic of discussion uh, in Washington. Affects all of us. Uh, the Biden administration, uh, very, very, I think on one of the first days that they were in office, announced that they wanted to have a another. This would be I, uh, depends on what you count, but <laughs> this is probably at least the fourth COVID relief bill that Congress will have passed if it's passed. And, they, and the President Biden's administration has proposed a $1.9 trillion plan, which would include stimulus checks going to people, it would include uh, assistance for the first time, direct assistance to state and local governments. Uh, it would include uh, more money for vaccinations, uh, more money for hospitals and schools, et cetera, um, uh, supplementing unemployment compensation. The Biden administration's um, Rationale here is that look, the virus is still with us. It, even though we're trying to ramp up uh, vaccinations, it uh, looks like it's going to be with us through through the summer, throughout the majority of this year. Uh, we're going to still carry a lot of people who are unemployed. Uh, I think we've got still net 10 million people unemployed. Um, so we need we need a large amount of money. And their their further justification is that look, if this money gets put into the economy, gets spent, it actually generates economic activity. Now, there was a counterproposal uh, from the primarily Republicans for a, a, a smaller version, $600 billion. I certainly don't want to get into the politics of this, but it's very interesting. A couple of economists who are on different sides of the political spectrum, uh, one named Phil Graham, who was a former U.S. senator from, from Texas, Republican, um, and, and as a Ph.D. economist, he taught at the University of Texas before he went into politics. And then on the other side, Democrat side, a gentleman named Larry Summers, uh, who uh, is a, currently a professor of economics at Harvard, but he's also a former Treasury Secretary, U.S. Treasury Secretary, former head of the National Economic Council under President Obama. He was also president of Harvard for a while. Uh, they have both uh, raised concerns about the size of the package, the $1.9 uh, trillion, and their concerns are that... Um, if we do see um, vaccinations start to take off and we see uh, uh, reopenings of, of parts of the economy, like particularly in the restaurant area, uh, start to those start to, to reopen and we see more hiring, uh, we're going to have some self-generation of economic activity due to that. And their worry is that maybe there's, a, there's an argument you can make, or at least they're making the argument, <clears throat> that we could actually be putting too much stimulus into the economy, and the downside of that is that if you get um, 
people out there and businesses out there trying to buy things and, and the producers are not able to keep up, what do you get? You get higher prices, i.e. you get higher inflation. So they're worried about these two economists, again, from different ends of the political spectrum. So politics isn't really involved here. It's economics. Are worried about that um, there is a downside to potentially overdoing it. Um, so that's something that I think people hear hear more about. My guess is because of the the, the, the composition right now of, of uh, the House and the Senate that probably the 1.9 trillion will has a good chance of, of going through. So we'll have to see as the year goes on. Uh, but but I'm I'm telling people do watch inflation. Do uh, do um, Take notice if they're starting to see when they go in the grocery store or other places, prices seem to be going up at a little faster pace. I'm not saying that we never have inflation. We always have some amount of inflation. But what many economists are thinking is that rather than sort of the 1% or 1.5% aggregate inflation rate that we've been seeing over the last year, maybe we'll see it drift up to as high as uh, 3%. So that's, I think, what both uh, Phil Graham and Larry Summers are concerned about. So we've got to keep an eye on it, and what we can do, what I can do, is invite people to come back for your monthly visit, which is usually around this time of the month or a little bit later. This is about as early as it usually happens. Well, I, and I do think, Tom, that this is a real, this is a real good example where, particularly in my line of work, economics, um, it's not like physics, it's not like chemistry, where you know if you do A, you're going to get B. I mean, there's a lot of unknowns here. Uh, there, there's, there, even though you can do study after study and, and predict what's going to happen, things can change. Uh, there's always a lot of variation around any any determining factor. And I think this is a real good example of that because I think you've got, you've got very good people on one side who say, we need this large package. Uh, and you have other people on the other side who say, no, uh, maybe we don't need quite as big a package. And if we do go with that big package, we might get something we don't like. So I think these are good people. These are people who are, 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 are making a point that they genuinely believe in. But I think it does show, and the longer I'm at this job of being a professional economist, the more I believe in this, uh, this is not an exact science. And that's why I think a lot of people will scratch their heads and say, why can't economists agree? Why don't you just say what's going to happen? Well, it's because we really don't know what's going to happen exactly because there's, the, the economy is just so complex not run, like running a controlled experiment in some of the physical sciences. Well, I have to get you a certificate or something in the hang on the wall of your office that says economics is not an exact science. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Mike Walden is our guest tonight. I always like to keep repeating that so you'll know who you're listening to. He is a professor of economics at NC State University. On our list for tonight, we've got two more topics, and we'll try to cover both of them right after this. We've got about... Uh, that's two of our topics that we were delegated tonight to look at. And I think the next thing that Dr. Walton wants and needs to talk about has to do with whether electrical energy is, is clean or not. Yes, Tom. Uh, there's a big push, of course, to, to uh, use fuels that are clean. And if you listen to this, uh, these discussions, a lot of it has to do with plugging in, plugging in a car, electric car, um, other things, I, I used to, I, where we live in West Raleigh, we have, have a, a third of an acre, typical third of an acre, but in the old days I'd have gasoline blowers going out. Now I, I, I use battery-powered blowers. And so I think there's a view that, well, electric, if you use anything electric, it's going to be clean energy. You don't have to worry about it. Well, the problem is there, electric electricity is not a prime energy source. It is generated from a prime energy source. So 
if you if you worry about the environment and you're using electricity, what you want to know is, well, how, where did that electricity come from? Uh, how was it generated? If, for example, it's generated from coal, uh, that's a relatively dirty uh, source. On the other hand, if it's generated from, from wind or, or solar or even nuclear, those are all clean uh, sources. So um, if, if you want to know where our electricity right now is coming from, the breakdown is the following. Natural gas is the top. 38% of our electricity is generated from natural gas. Uh, coal is second still at 23%. And there, however, there's been a shifting over time. We have reduced our reliance on coal and increased our use of natural gas. And natural gas, although it is a fossil fuel, is much cleaner than is uh, coal or oil. So natural gas, 38%, coal, 23%. Nuclear is, now I'm talking about nationwide, probably even higher here in North Carolina. Nuclear is at 20%. And that's actually considered a very, very clean source of fuel, I think, Problem is, of course, we have some issue with the, the plant, uh, as had, we had in um, uh, Three Mile Island decades ago, Chernobyl in, in Ukraine, and also in Japan, I guess, most recently. Then you can have bigger problems, but if, if nuclear is, is uh, they have no problems there, it's a very clean source. And then renewables at uh, 17%, and if you look at a breakdown of renewal, renewables, wind accounts for 7 of those 17%. Um, hydro. Uh, 7%. I think a lot of people forget that we generate a lot of electricity from hydro, certainly here in North Carolina, western North Carolina, if you go. And then uh, solar is, is still rather low at about 2%. So so um, I always have asked my, my kids this, my, my students this, uh, say, I'll say, well, is electricity naturally a clean source? And they'll, many of them look at me like, what are you talking about? Uh, and you have to know what the source is. So that's the breakdown right now. You know, I was trying to remember something, and this may not be the right place to ask it, but it is a place I can ask it. When the uh, Sharon Harris plant was being planned, I think they were planning to put four units, yeah. so they'd only, they'd only got one, and yeah. I think it was some of the fears that caused them to draw back from that. Does that sound right to you, No, that, that, no I, know it, I know the plan was for more. I'm not sure how many towers, but I know it was for more than one. And you're, and you're right. I forget when that was constructed, and maybe it was in the... I don't know. It was uh, well, I think uh, after Three Mile Island, but um, uh, yeah, some, yeah, they had plans. some countries in Europe, France, and, and Great Britain have had pretty good luck. No, France, seventy percent. I just happened to write that down here. Seventy percent of electricity in France is generated from nuclear. Seventy, seven zero percent. Well, I know I, when Mrs. Kearney and I were last in England, we were driving along what amounts to their interstate, and all of a sudden. Looming up in the distance are the, are the cooling towers, you know. Uh -huh. and, uh, and I said, when I get home and I've got my my Google Maps and everything, I'm gonna have to try to figure out exactly what this was. I, that's the kind of curiosity I yeah. suffer from. Another kind of curiosity that I suffer from is what the last big question is for tonight. And I think it, the question is: Is it necessary to be a failure to be a success? Good question, Tom. Uh, good question. Um, as I think about my uh, life experience, um, my first, uh, this is not failure in a business sense, but it was sort of failure in the, in the academic sense, which is leading the business or leading the career. I first wanted to be an architect. And um, I spent an entire year on an architectural program. This is undergraduate school. And um, didn't do well. Um, uh, the program I was in was 
very heavily oriented to, to design. I just didn't have that creativity. And that's where I was exposed to economics because as, a, as a, an elective, uh, was the advisor I had said, well, you need to take economics. So I was exposed to economics and um, eventually went into that. I know my father, late father, uh, had a failure where he um, came back from World War II and he joined the Carpenters Union in Ohio, learned to be a carpenter, and he and his brother, my late uncle, uh, they were only a couple years apart. They had a dream of having their own business uh, and building homes, spec homes. And they did that for about three or four years. And then the recession of 1959 came, which curiously was uh, in part caused by the Asian flu pandemic, or Asian pandemic, Asian flu pandemic, I guess they call it, uh, that, that uh, went tore through the world then. Uh, they went bankrupt. And... Um, uh, uh, they, they picked themselves up and, um, and, and moved on to other areas of the construction industry. So, and what I'm leading to here is a, a book that I came across recently, actually by the same gentleman I mentioned earlier, Edmund Phelps. Uh, it's a new book about innovation, and he talks in that book about the importance of innovation and, uh, to economies and, and that actually, if you look at the data, our rate of innovation has tailed off a little bit recently. But uh, he and his colleagues did a lot of analysis of what makes a good innovator, a person who's willing to take risks on new ideas and try to, to make a success out of that. And he found that one of the common features of successful innovators is that they hadn't been successful early in their career. They, they'd actually been a failure. And he concludes from that is that failure sometimes is, is very profitable to someone because you learn what not to do you learn perhaps that you you have to take risks. Some some work out, some don't. And so he actually found that a very common trait of successful entrepreneurs, if you will, that's a French term. I have to ask Mary, who speaks fluent French. I think that's a French term, just an innovator entrepreneur, is that they've actually failed early in their life. And that's something I like to tell my students because I think a lot of students think, well, you. Do this, you do that, and, and bammo, you're, you're, you're golden for the rest of your life. Well, life is not necessarily like that. There are ups and downs, and you can learn from the downs, and, and this analysis suggests that learning from the downs actually makes the ups even better. You should have ended up picking through the ruins to figure out well, which piece worked and which piece didn't. Yeah. Uh, I'm just going to put a sidebar on here. We're about, we're about through for tonight. We've only got about 45 seconds left, and I want to thank you for being with us. But some of the conversation that we've had here tonight puts me in remembrance of the GI Bill and the great effect that it had after World War II on the lives of the people who had been in the military. And, and my discovery that it wasn't purely economic, but that it was also a social measure because they, there had been a lot of upset after World War One with people coming back and not finding jobs. So this was one, one of the ways to kind of keep things cool, if you know what I mean. Oh, yeah. I think there was, if you lead the history after World War II in the economy, there was a lot of concern the economy was going to go back into a depression. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, we need to start it. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, Tom. We'll look forward. I, I can't wait for next month's show, okay? Okay. Good Thank to you. talk to you. Okay. Bye. Tomorrow night we're going to talk about romantic movies.